Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Hello and welcome to The Last Word. My name is Cam and I'm one of the Crosstalk interns and I'm joined by my other Crosstalk intern, Johnny. Hello there. Yes, and our amazing Crosstalk pastor, JD. Good to be here this morning. Yes. <laughs> well, I am so excited to be here with you guys this morning and kind of wrap up and talk about Crosstalk last week, and we talked about God's loyal, faithful love. And we learned that God always places Himself in positions to show us His loyal love, like J.D. talked about at Crosstalk on Thursday. So why do you think it's so hard for us, and why are we so hesitant for us to do this to other people and put our ourselves in positions to love others like this in our lives? I think at a, there's a fundamental issue for us as human beings and our ability to understand an unconditional love, a love that we feel like we don't deserve. And so uh, God's love, God's loyal love is truly the only unconditional gift that we get to receive here in this world. And so I think that it's hard for us to then love others in the same way because we have self-serving motives. Yeah. I I think that that would be like the most basic way to say that is that Mm -hmm. we are looking to get, even if we're not conscious of it, we are posturing in our acts of love because we're looking to then receive love in the same way that we've given it, or we are doing it in a way that is self-serving or even we're doing it to look good for the sake of others. And so I think that that's mm-hmm. why it's so incredibly difficult for us to to reciprocate this kind of loyal, unconditional love that God shows us is because we are broken and sinful human beings who have a tendency to have ulterior motives. And so therefore we put conditions mm-hmm. on that sort of love, yeah. which ultimately is a different kind of, it's not even love in the sense of what we talked about this past Thursday. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I think a good way that makes me think of this is if there was like a title of like how you view someone just floating above their head and stick with me on that. But <laughs> so God like sees all of us as like blood-bought sons and daughters of the Most High King. And he sees us with the utmost worth and like love and appreciation. He sees the whole story on what we've been through, why we act the way we did. And for us, like when I like see someone, I struggle to see all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of see them for how they treated me, you know, 10 minutes ago or how I viewed them um, just in a different scenario. And that's the title that I put above their head. And so that when my like eyes are focused on that, then I struggle to love that person. And so Mm -hmm. I think that we struggle just because we don't really see the full picture and that we Mm -hmm. forget who their identity is and that like we don't, um, I guess, constitute who they are, but rather like God already did and that we need to see that title above them. Yeah, I feel like we truly can't understand the kind of like hesed and the kind of loyal love that God shows us. And I feel like we truly can't grasp that towards other people without first understanding God's love for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just because of the way we're wired, because of sin. Like, it's just insane how we literally can't do that without first understanding what God has done for us and without the Holy Spirit. Um, And JD, you said a quote from, um, I forgot who it was by at Crosstalk, but it was, show me a church where there is love and there is like 
power and there's power there. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a quote by D.L. Moody, which uh, Moody Bible Institute, uh, wow. if anybody is uh, knows of that uh, Institute <laughs> of Higher Education or anything of that nature, D.L. Moody, uh, and he was 1800, so I said turn of the century, but it would be like turn of the 20th century sort of deal. Yeah. He said, show me a church where there is love and I will show you a church that is a power in the community. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering, I feel like I could hear and have heard so many other things that people think the church should be marked by. So why is it so important that it's a church marked by love where there's power found in it? I think that it gets back to what you just said about our ability to show love towards others mm -hmm. until our identity is understood in relation to God's love towards us, that has to be the defining factor is that that is what God demonstrates towards us. And when we fully understand that as central to our identity, we then begin to demonstrate that outwardly. And so when we think about that, it show me a church where there is love, where there's a group of people who deeply understand their identity mm -hmm. as as you said, Johnny, blood-bought sons and daughters of the Most High God, people who understand that, that then radiates out of them. And that's where we see church really become a power in the community, is mm -hmm. people who lead with the unconditional love of God. Mm -hmm. And that begins to transform, as we talked about on Thursday, that begins to transform all of our relationships. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Uh, I told y'all two weeks ago how I need to work on my uh, my memory verse skills. Uh, and sure, it was two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think so. <laughs> my memory apparently isn't great, uh, so I just had to Google this one. But the ESV version of First Corinthians thirteen one, Paul writes, "If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal." And mm -hmm. I'm sure y'all know that verse, but mm -hmm. that's just immediately what I thought of. Mm -hmm. That like Paul got that like. Also, and I'm sure that uh, that one guy, I'm sure he was <laughs> referring to this verse as well. That like Paul's like, hey, you know, you could be doing everything right, you know, you could be doing everything by the books that makes a good church, but if you do not love, then you're missing the point. You're just a you know noisy bonk or clong. <laughs> what, what is it? <laughs> noisy gong, gong <laughs> or a clanging cymbal. Yes, man, I don't. We don't have gongs around here anymore. I forget what they're called. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Paul got it. And so I think that I need to remember that verse a lot more that I'm, I need to be uh, reevaluating myself and being like, hey, if I'm doing everything right, I need to make mm -hmm. sure I'm loving also. And that that, you know, can come first even before, you know, doing things by the books, right? Mm -hmm. Something that I feel like the Lord has been telling me to do recently is every time I take an action to do something, I ask myself what my intention is behind doing it. And if there's any kind of deceit or any kind of like offensive way in me, I really ask the Lord to bring that to me. But I've caught myself going to do something and the Lord's like, what's your intention? Think about that. So that's been like for me, I feel like what the Lord has been teaching me in that. But this kind of brings us into a good transition for the last question that I have. And so God is God, right? Like he never runs out of energy. He never runs out of um, the ability to always be giving us this loyal kind of love. And so since we're called to do this now, how do we show this kind of love when we feel like we're on empty because we're not God and we don't have the same ability that he does to always extend this? So what would you say? 
I think that oftentimes we make out love to be these grand acts of extraordinary compassion and grace when really what it comes down to is like ordinary self-giving acts Mm -hmm. of like grace and justice and compassion. And so it's not going outside of ourselves to do something out of this world great for somebody Mm -hmm. else to demonstrate love. It is just in our simple, ordinary, everyday things. And when we frame it like that, it doesn't take that much energy. <laughs> it doesn't take that much time. It doesn't take that much love. Like it doesn't take that much money. Any of those sorts of things. When we think of our are the three T's: time, talent, and treasures, mm-hmm. as kind of the three aspects of capital that we have in our life to give. When it's just love is ordinary self-giving acts, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't take a lot of all three of those things. It doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a lot of talent. And it doesn't take a lot of money Mm -hmm. to do those things. It is truly in the moment where, uh, let's make this very, very practical. In the moment where you come home from work or school or whatever it is, and you are burned out and you're tired, and your roommate has had a terrible day, they have something going on at home, something really hard has happened in their life, our tendency is to, I'm going to go to my room (laughs) because I'm tired and I'm going to go to bed. And I'm just, or I'm burnt out on people today. And so I'm just going to go to my room and I'm going to watch TV by myself because that's the easier thing to do. Just listen. Just listen. Demonstrate love and care for your roommate by just showing up and listening. Mm. All it takes is a little bit of effort on our part to be emotionally present, to demonstrate the kind of self-giving love that God has demonstrated to us. Mm. And so that's that's just a very practical thing. And that's just, it, it's hard to do in practice because it requires us to actually be selfless. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's not that hard to do because it didn't cost us any money, didn't cost us any of our talents other than demonstrating that we're a good listener. And it just cost a little bit of time to be fully present and attentive to the needs who are around us. And so I would frame it in that way. Mm-hmm. Start thinking of this not as, oh my gosh, I have to, summon all of my energy because it's this big, hard act of love that I need to demonstrate for others. It is, what are the small things that I can start doing? Mm. Honestly, this is, to again, make this practical, this is what it looks like in marriage and relationships as well. Mm -hmm. It's not grand acts of love that I demonstrate to Taylor once a month when I feel bad about how I've done a poor job as her Mm -hmm. husband. It is every day doing small acts of service whether that is doing a good job of lessening, whether that is picking up the house before she gets home from work, whether that is deciding to do the dishes uh, to make sure that she has some time to rest. Those are the sort of selfless acts of love that really demonstrate this in a very powerful way in the lives of everyday people. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say pretty much everything he said. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine it was like way more articulate. No, he literally said everything that I feel like needed to be said for this. Um, So I guess just to give another practical example of that, because I love the thought that, yeah, love doesn't have to be this extraordinary, huge like thing that you do for someone, but rather in small ways, because often when we're burnt out, we just don't have that energy to do like large things. But I don't think that love is defined by how big of an action you do for someone. Mm. But also being, yeah, like listening was honestly the first example I thought of. But to pull out another one is to be like slow to speak. 
Um, I think something so big, especially in college, is that even if you think you have a better answer or the right answer or that like you want to speak into someone's life and maybe a lot of times it's not appropriate to do so that they just want to talk and like, you know, be able to like reflect with you and to like Mm -hmm. let loose all of their, you know, frustrations and stuff. And yeah, I mean, you got to be like listening, but you also need to be like slow to speak and being like, hey, like, okay, here's what I think. Like, this is right. Like, my way is right. Like, we should be doing this. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't I think being slow to speak is another way to love that I've noticed uh, I had to work on a lot in college and that like a lot of friends have had to work on in college. And so even Mm -hmm. if your way might be more efficient or better or something, I think a way to love is to be slow Mm -hmm. to speak and to, Mm -hmm. yeah, use that to listen and to respect and love that person in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think people open up to you so much more when you just sit and listen and you don't have any advice to give. Like if you're just like, "Mm -hmm." mm-hmm. And it's like, Mm -hmm. but there's more. (laughs) Like, And from my experience, I've noticed that's what makes people feel more comfortable and feel more seen and heard is just like, you know, you don't have to justify anything to me. You can just tell me, look, what's going on, how you're feeling. And this is a place of a judgment-free zone. And like, I'm here for you. And like, I'm not here to lecture you and try to tell you to do things better or be better but like I'm always here. And I think for me too, I get into this cycle where I do fall into that trap of like, okay, if I'm going to love someone, I have to make it this grand big action. (laughs) But then in doing that, I'm also hyper-focusing on myself and it's not even about the other person anymore. 100%. It's only about me and like the image that I'm projecting. But I really, um, I I read the book uh, Love Does by Bob Goff and something that he talks about is love doesn't like overthink. It's not like, do I feel like doing this or should I? Or like, what's this? It just, love just does. Mm -hmm. So if you're not sure, just do it. Yeah, that (laughs) echoes really what C.S. Lewis said. If like, stop worrying about whether you love your neighbor, just like go do it. (laughs) Like That's going to be the more simple way to approach this is to start acting on that. Yeah. Shia LaBeouf got it. (laughs) Just do it. You did. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, we should sponsor, not Nike should sponsor us. Yeah, they should. I think we've got a pretty good thing going here. <laughs> well, I'm going to hand it over to JD for the last word this week. Absolutely. So we talked about God's loyal love this past week. Uh-huh. We are going to kind of wrap up this uh, quintet, I believe is the right way to say it because it's five. <laughs> Quintet of attributes that God declares about himself. And it's a really cool thing because there are, it's another conceptual pair. So we deal with loyal love this past Thursday and this upcoming Thursday, we're going to pair that with faithfulness because they both have to do with loyalty and reliability and that God is loyal and that God is reliable in the way that he acts towards us. Ultimately, God is faithful which means that he is reliable and he calls us to respond to his faithfulness with acts of trust. Mm -hmm. And God has proven himself trustworthy and faithful through uh, all of these acts over a prolonged period of time, specifically the fulfillment of his covenant promises to Abraham and to David in the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And now we as humanity are invited to trust in Jesus despite any obstacles that might stand to hinder this act of faith. Mm -hmm. So we'll wrap up this week with talking about that. Well, I'm excited to see you guys on Thursday. Characteristics of God that are found in Exodus 34 verse six. Exodus 34 verse six. And these are five attributes that God declares about himself to us because this isn't somebody saying something about God, but it's God speaking about 
himself. And so we just got done talking about last week, anger. That, that how God, if we look at the scriptures, God becomes angry. And that can be something that's a, a bit uncomfortable for us. And that's very natural for us to feel some level of discomfort with us, with this. But we saw that this is a reaction of God towards human evil, disobedience, and suffering. And I don't know about you guys, I can only speak for myself here, but I don't want a God who is unmoved by injustice and human suffering and, and violence against one another. I want a God who becomes angry at those things, who acts in ways that bring about justice in those situations. But the defining characteristic of God is not that he gets angry, because that's a reaction. We saw that God being slow to anger is actually the thing that is central to his character. It is a core attribute of who God is, that he is long-suffering. That even when he is wronged, even when we have hurt him, he suffers with us, and he doesn't act out of anger. He is patient with us. And we said that God's slowness to anger is his intentional allowance of more time for more people to come to know him. For more to knowledge of who Jesus is. And so we're going to move into the fourth attribute that God assigns himself, which is notoriously difficult to translate. It's notoriously difficult to translate, and it's kind of ironic because the character attribute is that God is abounding in love. God is abounding in love. And if you look at this from a very basic viewpoint, you're like, what's confusing about love? Like, how can this be hard to translate? Love. But what we're going to see today is that the reason this word becomes difficult for us to understand is that it, it encompasses far more than our human definition of love. Now, have you guys ever been in a situation where uh, you're looking for a word to describe an idea, but you can't find the right word? It's actually happened to me. We were talking about this on Tuesday, which is pretty funny. And I'm trying to describe all of this to uh, Johnny and to Cam. And there comes a moment where I'm trying to integrate all of this stuff, and I just couldn't come up with the word. And I was like, and this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, we just have this, sometimes our brain totally cramps up and we have the, a total inability to remember a word that would be perfect for this situation. Now, for three years, I've been here and been with you guys here at Crosstalk. And one of, in my observation, one of the favorite games of people in Crosstalk is they love to play fishbowl. Now, for those of you guys who don't know what fishbowl is, basically you take a large bowl, and there are a bunch of small scraps of paper. And every person takes time, and they write a word or a phrase on this small piece of paper. Person, place, or thing. So it's got to be like a noun, right? And so you write all these things, you fold them up, you put them into this bowl, and then you divide into two teams. And the goal is to see what team can get the most number of points by guessing the words that are on these little pieces of paper. Now, the first round, and you guys have to correct me if I'm wrong, the first round, you're allowed to use words, but you're not allowed to use actions. So you can describe what the word is like, but you're not allowed to say the word, and you're not allowed to act it out. 
The second round is you can use actions, but you're not allowed to use words to describe the word. And the third round, you're only allowed a single word to describe whatever is on that piece of paper. Now, whoever, whatever team at the end has the most number, has guessed the most number of these slips of paper, wins. And so I had never, I'd never played this game until I got here. And I must confess in front of all of you guys that I don't like fishbowl. I don't like that game. And I don't like charades, and I don't like catchphrase, and I don't like taboo. Any of those where you're guessing things, not my jam. I just don't like them. Um, and I really don't like them for one particular reason, and that's because they cause me an immense amount of anxiety. <laughs> they cause me to be very, very uncomfortable. They stress me out, and I think it's because I get self-conscious. When I play that game, I become very self-conscious. If I'm the person who has to act out this thing, I'm now aware of the fact that everybody in the room is looking at me and I don't want them to be looking at me and I feel like I'm making a fool out of myself. Now, I generally consider myself to be someone who is fairly adept with words. I read a lot of books, I do a lot of public speaking, um, I have a decently broad vocabulary as a result of all of this, but knowing that I have a small amount of time and a limited way of communicating the idea of the word that is on that piece of paper is not my cup of tea. I get all sweaty. I get fearful at some level. Um, I get very antsy if you guys were to just sit and watch me play this game. I'm the guy who's just constantly fidgeting in my chair because I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this game. It just gets me outside of my comfort zone, and I hate it. I really... Do, and I think it's because I'm afraid that I'm gonna look dumb in front of all of you guys. I just am afraid that I'm gonna look dumb, that I'm gonna get to the end of my turn, and I'm gonna be stuck on this one stupid piece of paper, and there's gonna be a really easy way to have described it, but I just couldn't think about it, right? That's the reason I ultimately get self-conscious. Now, we all, that's just a game, but we all run into these moments in our life where we're in a conversation with another person, and we are trying to communicate an idea, and we know that there's a perfect word for us in this situation, and we just can't come up with the word. And either we end up in a spot where our brain totally freezes up and we basically just shut down, or we start scrambling and we're trying to describe this word in a roundabout way. Well, it's like this and this and this, and it always ends up even more confusing than when you started because you just can't come up with the word that you need. And it leads to these points where we might be talking about the same thing in theory with somebody, but really in all reality, we are on totally different planets. We're just having a moment of miscommunication because we can't come up with the one word that we need. In English, we might say that we're beating around the bush, right? That, we're, that we can't get directly to what we're trying to say, and so we're explaining all of the things that are around it. In all reality, some languages just have a better way of expressing very particular ideas. Certain languages just do. Like deja vu, for example, that's a French word, if you guys didn't know that, and it's describing the feeling that you've experienced a moment before. Now, that is a very cumbersome way to describe that in English, but deja vu is perfectly descriptive, 
right? And so there's something about the French language that gets to the, to the heart of this idea that we can't get to in our human expression. And that is actually a great way for us to think about the translating of the word that we're going to study today. Our different English translations are all kind of like beating around the bush at this concept. And they're hitting on different elements of of the definition without being able to find an all-encompassing word to describe this singular word in the Hebrew language. And so we're going to delve into how do we most accurately understand that God is abounding in love. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, we're reading in the NIV, and we've been doing that because it kind of translates the other character attributes much better than some of the other translations. And so it it translates this here very simply, abounding in love. Now, this is the most broad way that we could translate this word. The phrase is a translation of the word, the Hebrew word, chesed. Can you guys say that with me? Chesed? Yeah, there's like a guttural to it. It's like you're about to start clearing your throat. It it would be like if you wrote it in in English, a K-H. Chesed. Chesed. And so that's what this word is. And if you were to look at this verse in a bunch of different English translations, you would see a bunch of different things, including mercy, Some translations put this as mercy. Others say that it's loving kindness, all one word, by the way. Loving kindness, all one word, which doesn't really seem like that's actually an English word, but that's what they decided to do. You'll see unfailing love. ESV says steadfast love. And if you were to notice, if you were to look, uh, one of the things you can actually do, if you just go online, a a bunch of varying websites do this. You can look at a bunch of translations next to one another. So if you were to look at this all next to one another, what we see when the same word is translated in a bunch of different ways is that for us as the reader, there has to be this little flag that pops up that there's something off right here. When we see this in different forms, in all of these different translations, there's something interesting going on here. There's an opportunity for us to learn because what this is saying, what these translation differences are saying is that the translators are struggling to find an easy way to make a one-for-one correspondence in the English language with the biblical Hebrew language. And so they're struggling because there isn't a singular word that they can plug in here in this place that gets at the idea and the root of this Hebrew word. Now, chesed is a challenging word to translate because it combines this idea of love and generosity and enduring commitment. It combines all of these aspects of love and generosity and enduring commitment. Ultimately, chesed describes this act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. It's motivated by deep personal care. So for the sake of this conversation, I want you guys to think about this as loyal love. That's probably the most effective way that we can get to kind of this conception of what this word means, that loyal love, that God is abounding in loyal love. 
Now, chesed is the kind of love demonstrated by somebody who's determined to keep a promise and they're motivated to endure and maintain a covenant through self-giving generosity. It's promise-keeping love, covenant-keeping love. That is to say that this isn't kind of an emotional kind of love, but it's a concrete action-taking love. It's the difference between saying the words, I love you, and acting in a way that honors your commitment to that other person by simple acts of service. It's the difference between just saying with my mouth that I love you, that I care about you, and actually demonstrating that love in everyday concrete action. Now, when I was growing up, um, we had, we have some really, really good family friends, and we go way back. They have Two, they have two kids who are the exact same age as me and my brother. My dad and their dad went to elementary school together. Our grandparents were friends. And so we go back like three generations with this family. It's really remarkable. And still to this day, they're, they're more family than they are friends. Do you guys have those sorts of relationships in your life? Well, my, my grandfather passed away when I was in sixth grade. And... Uh, at that point in time, my best friend's grandfather took on the role of being a grandfather to me. Now, this wasn't this like intrusive kind of like, now I'm going to insert myself into your family life and try to give you all this wisdom. It was that he recognized that there were certain things that my grandfather wanted to teach me how to do that he never had the opportunity to teach me. And so my best friend's grandfather then took on that role in my life. He walked into my life. He taught me how to do these things. And one of the more intimate and sweet things about this relationship is that during this time, he would tell me stories about my grandfather. And so through kind of getting to experience this grandparent relationship, he was relaying who my grandfather was. That when at sixth grade, I just didn't have a conception or an understanding of the, the person that my grandfather was. And so we would share these things with me, touching things, funny things, stupid things. But all of this is taking place in this relationship. Now, several years ago, uh, I used to call him Papa Chuck. Papa Chuck, his wife begins to get sick. His wife begins to get sick. And there comes a point in time where she can no longer take care of herself. And I remember distinctly that when this happened... Papa Chuck dedicated himself full-time to the care of his wife, to the care of his bride of north of 50 years. Everything else in his life began to fade away, and he devoted himself full-time to caring for her. That meant bathing and feeding and pushing her around in a wheelchair, helping her get in and out of her bed or into her chair. It was managing her comfort and her pain. Now, this is Chesed. This is the kind of love that we're talking about. It's concrete action taking love. It is this love and affection that motivated him to everyday concrete actions, which demonstrated that level of care for his wife. Now, if he had just sat on the couch and as she's getting older and unable to do these things for herself, and he just said, I love you, that's not chesed. That's just emotional. There's no action behind those words. 
Now, on the other hand, if we were to say that, and there's nothing wrong with this, if he had hired somebody because he was too frail to help his wife, to come in, and maybe it's an in-home nurse, whose job it is is to care for his wife. Well, she has the action. She's doing the work of care, but she doesn't have the affection. This isn't chesed either. And so it's not just emotion, and it's not just action. It is where these two things come together in very concrete ways. Chesed describes the kind of love that's a commitment and a choice and a desire all in one. A commitment and a choice and a desire all wrapped up into one. Now, most of the occurrences of this word in the Old Testament, and there are a ton of them, refer to God's loyal and generous commitment to his undeserving people. It just demonstrates the way that God interacts with his people who are oftentimes undeserving. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's hesed is never based on personal worthiness. He doesn't pour out this loyal love on all the people who are worthy and righteous. Rather, it's based on his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. If you guys were to go through the narrative of the Old Testament, you would see that there are certain generations of Israel who were far less faithful to the covenant they made with God. But God willingly puts himself in positions where he has to be generous with these people. This is the kind of love that he demonstrates. It's a a love that comes with risk because it might not be reciprocated. But that risk doesn't stop God from taking these concrete actions and steps of covenant faithfulness to his people. Now, God's greatest demonstration of this loyal love was demonstrated through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, for the redemption of all humanity. Now, the exact word chesed isn't found in the New Testament, simply for the fact that the New Testament is written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so you're dealing with the fact that there's an issue in translation again, because you're now going from the Hebrew to the creek. So there isn't going to be a a word that exactly gets at all of this idea, but the concept is found all throughout the New Testament. Paul, for example, uh, says it this way in his letter to Titus. This is Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul is saying that God saved us not because of our works of righteousness, Actually, at the beginning of this passage, he points to all of the things that we do wrong. He says that we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our own desires, that we lived our lives out of malice and envy, that we hated one another and we were hated by one another. 
Now, this is an extraordinarily dire picture of humanity, of the human condition. We're pointing out the worst of the worst about what it means to be human here in the earth. Yet, according to his mercy, his loving kindness, and his loyal love, he saves us through Jesus Christ, who gave his life as an act of love for all humanity. And he washed us clean through the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we have been justified by his grace, and we have now become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's remarkable. Did you guys catch the end of that? We are now heirs to the hope of eternal life. Because of God's loyal love for us, by his act of loyal love in the person of Jesus, we now have become heirs to eternal life. That is the most remarkable thing I have ever heard. We've been given what we do not deserve, and it's all because of God's loyal love towards us, his image bearers here on earth through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul then reminds us that this is a trustworthy saying. I always laugh at this because this is super funny to me because he basically says what I just said, that's a good word. Like, (laughs) keep that one. And so he says, this is a trustworthy saying. In other words, what I just said is true. It's reliable. It's faithful. So that when everything else in our world is going to shambles, this is a trustworthy thing to fall back on. This is true. This is what Jesus is talking about when he, when he, says, when he get, tells the parable of the man who built his house on a firm foundation. This truth found in these verses is that firm foundation for our lives. Now here, what Paul is doing is he's moving us from head knowledge to a deep internal understanding of our own identity. He's saying it's not enough to know what God's loyal love looks like in the Bible. It's not enough to be able to define the Hebrew term. It's not enough to be able to look at its usage all throughout the Old Testament. But this understanding is meant to form our identity becomes the foundation of who we are as individuals. It's something that we are are to internalize and come to know is true. It's what we base our life on because, Paul says, it is trustworthy. It is trustworthy because every other way that we define ourselves is fleeting. Every other way that we define ourselves is dependent upon our own perspective or upon our gifts and our talents and our strengths. And all of those things ultimately end up going away. But this is a trustworthy foundation of who we are as people. So what does it look like for us to then display this loyal love to others? We have to make this transition from head knowledge where we know stuff about the Bible to then allowing that to become an internal reality, a part of who we are, to then that changes the way that we live. 
That's the way that this all works, is we go from the head to the heart, and then it, everything flows out of our heart. Paul goes on to answer that question for us. He says, he helps us to make this transition from understanding God's loyal love for us into how that changes the way that we live our lives. Verse eight says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He calls us as those who have believed in God to then devote ourselves to good works. Meaning we are to demonstrate this kind of loyal love towards others. What we have received, we then freely give to the people around us. Loyal love is expressed all throughout uh, the Old Testament in, in human-to-human relationships. So when somebody is it's said that they are showing hesed to someone else. This is defined as acts of justice, right action towards other people, and honoring God's commands. Those, in essence, are good works. Then in our person-to-person interactions, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the just thing. We're doing the honorable thing. And we are honoring God's commands in our life. Ultimately, this comes back to what is the greatest commandment, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of good works. When we are motivated by and we reflect the character of God, only then do we actually live out what it means to be God's image here on earth. When we are motivated by and reflect the character of God in our lives, only then do we actually live out what it means to be God's image here on earth. So here's the question that's been rolling around in my brain all week. And I'm gonna take this from a me statement to a you statement here, but it's the thing that I've been dwelling on for the last seven days. Who in your life do you claim to love but struggle to demonstrate that love in the reality of everyday life? Who is the person in your life that's easy to say that you love them, but it's really, really hard to love them actually with your actions and your words in everyday life? Is it a parent? Is it a roommate? Is it a friend? Is it a classmate or a sibling? Is it a coworker? Is it a boss? Is it somebody in your community group? That might be a shameful one to admit, but sometimes it's true. Is it an authority figure? Is it a professor? Is it just somebody who has judged your way of life and what you believe? Who in your life do you claim to love but struggle to demonstrate that in the realities of everyday life? You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. And if you injure somebody you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them more. If you do them a good turn, you will find yourself disliking them less. The first two sentences of that are remarkable. 
And he's right, if we're being honest with ourselves. Don't waste our time bothering on the question of do you love somebody? Do something about it. Demonstrate it in the reality of every day life. What Lewis is getting at here is that this sort of loyal love is an action. This sort of loyal love is an action. It's not enough to say that we love someone. We must act as if we do. Let us, as the people of God, then reflect God's loyal love towards others through selfless acts of love and service. Instead of saying we love people, how would it look different if we actually did? Talk about a countercultural move. I feel like one of the hot-button things to talk about right now is how divisive our society is today. And it's really easy for us as Christians to say to ourselves and to say to others that we love people that we disagree with, but how often do we actually demonstrate that in the reality of everyday life? That we choose to love and to serve those that we disagree with, those that we don't get along with, It doesn't need to be these grand gestures or actions, but simple, ordinary things that demonstrate great care. Simple, ordinary things that demonstrate great care. We seek, as the people of God, to be authentic people whose proclamation of our trust in Jesus is backed up by ordinary but self-giving acts of justice and grace and compassion. That is what it means to love our neighbor as ourself, to, to demonstrate this kind of loyal love that God demonstrated for us. Now, I believe that this kind of loyal love has an extraordinary power to change the world. I do. And I also realize that that is an exceedingly broad statement. So let me be more specific. I believe that our ability and our willingness to demonstrate the loyal love of God to the world around us has the power to change our families. I believe it has the power to change our workplaces and our classrooms and this campus. The reality of what God gets, wants to do gets lost when we begin talking about the entire world. How about we make this as specific as we can be? When we start to live out this kind of concrete action-taking love amongst the people who are closest to us, that transformation starts very, very small. It starts very, very small. When people are living differently as a result of experiencing this promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by this deep sense of personal care, this concrete action-taking love, there's transformation that begins to happen. And we see a surprising move of God in our families and in our workplaces and our classrooms. And I believe that's what God wants to do here on this campus. There's a famous theologian around the turn of the century who said, show me a church where there is love and I will show you a church that is a power in their community. Show me a church where there is love and I will show you a church that is a power in the community. Let us be a community where there is love. That that is how people define us, that is how people see us because we have internalized it so deeply we know it's true. 
that then we begin to demonstrate that in everyday ordinary actions. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you, Lord, that that your word is true, that it is trustworthy, God. We thank you that, that when we are told the truth, Lord, that we know that we can trust it, that we can trust you, Jesus. And so we thank you for your loyal love that was demonstrated so personally in your son, that, that in Jesus, Lord, that you have made a way for all of us to come back to right relationship with you, God. That this is the ultimate demonstration of your love for us. And so for us, God, I pray for anybody here in this room who has not yet said yes to you, Lord, I pray that they might come to know you, God. That you might stir something in their heart, Jesus. And God, for those of us who have said yes to you a long time ago, or maybe even just a little, just recently, God, we we ask that your love would become new for us today, that it would fall fresh on us today, Lord. And that as we internalize that more and more, that we begin to be people who live out that kind of loyal, promise-keeping love to the world around us. We pray this all in your name.